You may be seated. Hello, Emmanuel. My name is Kelly, if we haven't met yet, and it is a gift to get to stand with you guys today and welcome anyone who may be visiting. Um, those of you who know me know that I get the gift of working in college ministry. And uh, a couple years ago, I work at Texas State now, but before that I worked in Corpus Christi, Texas. And um, while I was in Corpus Christi, uh, I hung out with a college student named Ashlyn. And Ashlyn deeply loved the Lord. And Ashlyn felt moved in her heart that she loved the Lord so deeply that she felt called to go into the local high schools and care for high school students. And so part of my role in my ministry is to help equip and teach people how to step into those roles. And so I got to walk with Ashlyn as she stepped into a local high school. And she spent about a year hanging out in that high school and she met a girl named Mia. And as she spent time with Mia for that year, they became dear friends. They shared meals together, they laughed together, they got to know each other. And Mia had a really hard life, a really hard home. And Ashlyn showed up in those spaces for her when things felt really hard. Well, about a year into their relationship, it got to the point where Mia said, Ashlyn, you're so different. What makes you this way? I don't understand. And so Ashlyn invited Mia to open the scriptures with her. And as they dove in, there was a day, and I'll never forget this moment because I think about it often. Ashlyn looked at me and she said to her, Mia, God loves you. Do you know what that means? And do you know how much he loves you? And Mia said, you know what? A year ago, I would have told you I had no idea what that meant. She goes, Ashlyn, I don't know if you know this, but no one had ever told me that they loved me before. Not my mom, not my dad, not my friends. I don't live in a home like that. You were the first person who stepped into my life and told me you loved me, Ashlyn. And she said, if you had told me a year ago that God loved me, I would have had no context for what you were telling me. But because you loved me first, I now know what you mean when you tell me God loves me. That is the Great Commission. It is our calling to step into the broken world we live in, look at those around us, and call out their belovedness, and show them that we first and foremost love them as they are, because we know that is how Christ loves them. And then we get to illuminate the truth that may have been hidden throughout their life, that they are, belong to Christ, and in him he has set them free. And so this is a small picture, right? We could look at that image in so many ways and so many stories, and I'm sure if we sat in a circle in this room, there are many stories we could share that all of us, our hearts would open up at the faithfulness of followers of Jesus who have lived this out. Today is Mission Sunday in the church calendar, and that is important to remember because we remember God's heart for the world that he didn't just break into the world as Jesus Christ, come and live a life, die on the cross, and then resurrect, and then leave and say, good luck. He stays present in his joyful work. And in this passage that we read today in the gospel according to Matthew, 
we realize he looks at us and he invites us to participate in the joyful work. I want to look at this passage, and so we're going to kind of dissect it through the verses. In 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I picture this moment, the disciples have really been through it. They would have had gotten years of ministry next to Jesus in this beautiful, profound way. But we're watching them in a season where they would have had just experienced his brutal, violent death. And then the switch and contrast of his resurrection. So to say emotions are heightened would be an understatement, right? We see these 11, and may I say again that it's 11. The one who is missing is apparent in the story that follows that. And so these 11 sit with Jesus, and I love that it says some worship and some doubted because I remember the humanness of the people standing with him, and I'm encouraged in my own faith. And so they sit with him, and Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus stands before them, and these are the last words in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says to his people, to his friends. And we know last words matter. There's times in Scripture where Jesus' ministry may have felt secret in some way, hidden. Moments where he's a little bit ambiguous and not here. These are the last moments, and he takes them with clarity. He says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth. This verse roots everything he's about to say into a Trinitarian mission. This unites the church's mission with his mission, the mission of the Trinity. Why does authority matter? Well, anyone who's ever had a boss ever knows that who we are under matters. We either crumble or we flourish. And so the fact that it is Jesus in charge speaks hope into my soul today, that that is who we will hear this message from. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus begins by saying, hey, go make disciples. In the year 2024, we have the challenge of sitting and saying, what does that mean? What is a disciple? How do we do that? And to be honest, a lot of times we fumble through it. I think of a story of when I sat with a college student one day. She called me to get lunch, and she sat before me, and she said, Kelly, I just got back from this really intense conference, and they told me I have to do something crazy for God. And I said, okay. And she goes, and I basically had intense anxiety ever since I got back. I don't think that maybe I'm called to follow Christ because I have no idea what that means, and I don't know if I can perform at that level. Christ, have mercy on us. When we think that the Great Commission is our role as a salesperson 
who's going in and trying to fill a quota. And if I'm being honest with you, that is what I feel like I'm doing on my worst day. Evangelism is one of those great, beautiful truths that I think has been twisted in our world. And if we're approaching this passage and we automatically feel anxiety and pressure and failure and shame, I want to tell you, I think we have something off. And today I want to look at how reorienting where this comes from can actually bring us freedom and joy in our calling. I think of a time uh, when John and I were engaged and I watched a documentary on human trafficking in Thailand. And it was beautiful, beautiful music and soundtrack and imagery and scale and all these things. And I called John and I said, you better come over now. We got to talk. John walks in my door and I say, I'm called to Thailand, John. We're going, you're marrying me. We're going to Thailand. And he was like, what happened? What, I feel like we talked like 20 minutes ago. And I was like, well, I watched this, this movie and it was super moving and I just, that's where I'm supposed to go. And John looks at me and his, the gracious human he is, he pinpointed exactly what was happening. He goes, just wondering, he goes, for the record, I will go to Thailand with you if that's genuinely where God's calling you. But I'm just wondering if God called you to a tiny one stoplight town in Texas and you could never leave again and you could only minister to the people in that town, would you go? And I said, ooh, is there a pretty soundtrack playing while I'm doing it? (laughs) I am so thankful for that moment because, oh my gosh, Jesus tells us clearly to go to the nations, to go across the world and preach his good news. But Lord, forgive me when I go to feed my own ego or to create a story I think is what will look good. He asks us to first look at the heart of why we do what we do and to discern the calling from that. We look at what it means to be a disciple in 2024 and it's hard for us to sift through, but we have to think of the audience of this passage. Jesus is speaking to his dearest friends. And to say, go make disciples, is Jesus looking at them and saying, go do what we've been doing. Go out and live the way we've been living. And guys, I'm sure it was thrilling. People were raised from the dead. Demons were cast out. People were healed. But honestly, it was, a probably, it was probably a lot of walking and talking and meals and the slow steadiness of Jesus being patient with human formation. Meals are what anthropologist Mary Douglas would call boundary markers. John Mark Comer writes in his book, Practicing the Way, he said, one theologian wrote, Jesus got himself killed by the way he ate. He ate with all the wrong people, turncoats like Zacchaeus, prostitutes, Gentiles, the unclean, danger, danger. He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was not a compliment. You see, for Rabbi Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom, not a way to keep people out, but to invite them in. 
You see, Jesus used the simple acts of life as a way to speak the good news. And he invites us into the same. There is a strong difference between proselytizing and evangelizing. The image pops in my head, and I have some Texas State students here, of the guy who comes to our campus once a year with a megaphone and screams at all the students walking by. And he screams at them the Ten Commandments. And I have met with students in tears afterwards. Proselytizing is doing the wrong thing for the right reason. It's messaging Jesus by any means necessary, manipulating, coercion, alienating. But Jesus doesn't invite us to that. He invites us to evangelizing, which is embodying the truth which we are teaching. The same Jesus that we want people to know are the ones we are trying to embody. Jesus invites three things that we see modeled by his ministry. First, and I think these can be summed up in the head, heart, and hands. First, he makes space for the gospel, the hands, the hospitality, the relationship, the safe environments he makes over things like meals and walking. And that can be anything. That can be playing basketball. That can be showing up at someone's house with a sonic drink. That can be just the simple daily moments we have next to people. Second, he asks that we demonstrate the gospel through embodying the heart. He, he asks us to teach them everything, teach them to obey everything he has commanded us. And this teaching doesn't come in a pamphlet. It comes in a real-life version of us first believing the tr true good news for ourselves and embodying God's word and commands and coming up as a real-life example for that. And we know that there is a lot of woundedness out there for Christians who aren't following that call. And this is our protection against pride because we aren't telling people what to do. We're asking them to join us in it. And lastly, we're called to articulate the gospel, the head, right? Man, I would love if I could like go mow my neighbor's lawn and they could be like, I think Jesus died for my sins, right? That would be really nice if that worked, but Jesus asked that we actually articulate that we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truth matters that we speak the truth of Christ. Dr. Michael Green of Oxford in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, argues 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians, not pastors, not Christian celebrities, and was mostly just by explaining their unusual way of life to their family and friends, by living in such a way that people were drawn to the beauty of their lives. I love this because we tend to think two things can disqualify us from a life of ministering. Number one is our limits, and then number two is our personality or who we were created to be. Uh, when I was a new mom, I sat with my sister-in-law crying, and I said, I just don't know how I'm gonna do this anymore. I can feel the limits closing in of being a mom and I can't see how I can do it the way I used to. 
And she beautifully looked at me and she said, Kelly, your calling is in partnership with your limits. Your limits are a piece of your calling. And I would go as far to add as the way you were created in your personality is a piece of your calling. You see, I think our limits, and that's whatever you think in your life restricts you, in your personality, introverted, love to read, fun, loud, things you care about, the way God built you, are not a barrier to where we are called, but instead perhaps a clear circle that's been drawn around exactly where we are called. What unique combination of your limits and personhood give you the individualized favor to minister to those around you? I see this done really well with the people around me. I see it in the limit of location. College students ministering to their peers. Those who cook meals and bless their neighborhoods with porch drop-offs. Those who pay attention to the poor on their daily commute to work. I see it in vocation. I see it the work of the teacher. I see it the work of the hospice nurse. I see it the work of those in software or tech. I see it in lifestyle. I see it in the life stage that you might uniquely be in. Maybe it's long road trips with friends having spiritual conversations. Maybe it's caring and paying attention to the babysitter that's walking into your home each, each week. Maybe it's walking next to a friend that's in the stage of caring for their aging parents. I see it in aging, I see it in giftings and personality, the ability of creatives, painters, writers, musicians, and storytellers, poets, all able to speak a language different than others, a language that speaks the good, the true, and the beautiful, the technical, the organized, the systematic bringing rhythm and habit alive in spiritual formation. I see it in the fun and those who love to play and bring to life God's joy. And I finally, I see it in those brave enough to take their own brokenness and story and do the holy work of meeting another in their brokenness and story. Those who have faced grief, those who have faced chronic suffering, those who know persecution. Your unique giftedness and story and limit are a piece of your calling. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the message, writes Romans 12.1 as this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. You see, what we can be told as a lie that something disqualifies us is actually a signpost of our unique calling in the kingdom. If your world feels limited, who stands before you in that small world that you are being called to see? How is your unique story, personality, culture, worldview, gifts, a way that the Lord has created you to love others that only you may have access to? Will it cost you? Yes. 
But as Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross with his ultimate cost, there are unseen things in this world where the reward is far greater than the cost. So I urge you to measure it wisely. When I think of friends that are doing this well, I think of my friends on my college Young Life team who I've invited here who are standing in the back. You can say what you want about Gen Z, that they might be individualized and on their phones and not care, but I watch these faithful students stand in opposition to the status quo and live out their belovedness in Christ, and students on Texas State campus keep looking at them and saying, what is different about you? Which leads me to my last point. Jesus says, therefore, go. And I can't help but think these are the last words as Jesus. What are the first to his disciples? He looked at them and said, come. Come and follow me. And this, I believe, sums up the journey of the Christian life, of both coming to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and sitting with them in Holy Communion. And out of that strength and belovedness, we return to the world and we go out and we preach the good news because we know and believe it to be good news from experience. Henry Nouwen said that Jesus' life moved along a continuum of solitude to community to ministry. And that is our calling over and over again. And we realize that he doesn't ask us to do this alone. Even the going is in partnership. Jesus ends with this. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A really dear friend of John and I's in our beginning of our marriage, gave us an image for the concept of being with. He told the story of his little boy, who was five, who at night would get really scared of monsters in the closet. And so each night he would call to his dad and say, Dad, there's a monster in the closet. And so when our friend first went in there, he would say, no, monsters don't exist. Logically, that does not make sense. You shouldn't be afraid. And the son looked at him and says, I don't care what you say. I know they're in there. And so he kept trying to logically talk him out of it until one night he said, I'm not going to just try and explain this away. I'm just going to go grab my son and hold him and lay with him. And his son fell instantly asleep. That is the gift of being with. Christ offers that withness to us in our calling. He offers the gift of presence, which we should not take that gift lightly. And he asks us as a partner to walk into this world and preach the good news. I can't help but read this passage and feel a thankfulness in my heart for the 11, because I believe we're sitting here today because of their faithfulness. One of my favorite Fred Rogers moments, if you guys love Mr. Rogers as much as I do, is he won an Emmy. You guys may know this story. And as he went up for his acceptance speech, instead of saying all these things, he walked up, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but he basically looked at everyone. He said, I just want to use my time to give everyone a moment to think of everyone who loved them into existence. And then he said, I'll watch my clock. I'll give you 10 seconds. And I want to take a moment to do that. 
I want us to take a moment of reflection. Who are those in our life that we can look to? Maybe those who shared Christ with us for the first time, or maybe those that are partners on the long road of traveling who look at us and say, yes, let's keep going together. This is the good news. Let's keep hope. Let me remind you of truth. Or maybe those further out in front of us saying, keep going, trust me, keep following. So let us take a moment to reflect on those who came before us. Now, Lord, give us the strength to continue the lineage, and we thank you for our own, to continue the joyful work that you began when you broke into the world and modeled to us in life the perfect communion with you. Let our cups overflow into those surrounding us. In your heavy name, amen.